0: Welcome to the B2B Category Creators Podcast, hosted by Gil Alouche, founder and CEO of Metadata.io. This podcast is all about sharing the real and sometimes uncomfortable secrets of category creation in the B2B software space. On this week's episode, we have Melanie Fillet, CEO and co-founder of SpecIt, a SaaS-based in-app digital adoption and enablement platform and Rami Asad, CEO and co-founder of Finmark, a financial modeling and planning software for startups. All right, so
1: this is all about category creation. Um, and so uh, first question for you guys is, um, I'll start with Rami this time. Uh, when you build Finmark and, you know, Did you plan on creating a category? And you have a lot of experience from your your previous position as well. So maybe you can basically introduce the last company that uh, you founded as well. But did you plan on creating a category in your last two companies?
0: You know, with with Finmark, we do financial planning for startups. There is already a category of financial planning and analysis software, but they've left startups and mid-market companies and, you know, out to dry, um, all the companies that exist in this category are made are ke- geared towards enterprise companies. So we're not quite creating a category with ThinMark, but we're creating a category for this type of customer, right? Or a niche for um, smaller customers. And my last company, Distill Networks, uh, it was a brand new category. The the idea didn't exist before us, um, and it was bot detection um, and secu- web security um, online. Before Distill Networks, that that just wasn't a thing. Um, we knew it wasn't a thing, um, and we but we thought that it should be, and so yeah, we we intentionally went out to to create a category.
1: Okay, so we'll talk about both today: the, the recasting, which I guess is what you're you're currently um, going to go through, and then we'll, we'll also talk about the still uh, networks as well. Um, Melanie, tell us a little bit about your company, and um, you know, tell us about category because you're like at the intersection of multiple,
2: multiple different
1: categories. categories. Yes.
2: That's exactly right. Um, So yeah, Speckit is is the easiest way for employees to learn how to use their tools, processes, workflows, um, and how to do their jobs by putting the enablement, knowledge, training that employee needs front and center within the applications they use every day. Um, And how Speckit came about is I was working actually at a company that was creating a category, a real estate crowdfunding marketplace. uh, Story for another time, but really interesting uh, space at the time. And, you know, as we were onboarding hundreds of employees and like trying to drive all this change in the company, you know, implementing new tools and processes, like we were just dealing with a lot of inefficiency, you know, slow ramp up times, et cetera. And so I started looking at solutions across three different categories, right? So A, how do people use our tools, right? Digital adoption is kind of at the forefront of that, right? How do people find the knowledge they need? So knowledge management. And then how do we make sure people learn how to do their jobs, which is more of your traditional learning management system? And You know, I felt like while, you know, solutions in those categories for certain use cases were beneficial, I kind of just wanted like certain features from each one and a single platform that would do it all. I needed a lighter version. I didn't need to go as deep in like digital adoption with RPA and stuff. I just wanted like the contextual part of the walkthroughs. And so I really really reimagined, you know, what would it look like to have a single platform that kind of takes inspiration from these different existing products, but is really reimagined for what, the way that I think employees actually want to learn, right? Timely relevant to them and personalized. And so we've kind of been on this journey of like initially when we went to go to market, kind of like pegging ourselves more to digital adoption, because that was the initial features but then like quickly found that enablement was resonating more. So we are like, well, what if we did digital enablement? And so that's kind of where we're playing now, but really I think the word that's being used the most to kind of describe what we do is called just in time learning. Um, But from an SEO and SEM standpoint, there's nothing there yet. And so, you know, there's benefits at different stages to kind of peg yourself to different categories. And so we're honestly on that journey ourselves, which is like, we know that what we're doing is unique but we're still kind of on that path of deciding, you know, is it? It's an entirely new category, and and how do we kind of position around that? Um, so that's where we're at right now.
1: And and what are you doing to you know figure out? You, know, you said just in time. You know, I'd been told. Uh, by Mark organ uh, who's actually been on the podcast before and he mentioned something like you don't get to decide what your category is going to be called mm-hmm. right and uh, but some people have been able to do so uh, but you know most of the time somebody else is is going to create that but so how do you know that just in time is is really where uh, it's going to go and are you currently having conversations with analysts about yeah. the category?
2: yeah, good question. I mean, I think the the one kind of fun thing about the space we're in is like Enablement and RevOps alone are like new jobs and new careers and things that came up in the last like 10 years. So we're already in like this new space of broader kind of sales technology, sales enablement. Um, What I see just in time. So the evolution of like learning was like, okay, first there was the learning management system, then there was micro learning, which is just like, let's do it bite size. Just in time is a concept of like delivering training and content right when the individual needs it. And so it's more of a concept than it is a category. Uh, And to answer your question, I am talking to few analysts, actually Josh Burson is the biggest analyst in like the broader kind of HR enablement space. And he says like what he's seen a lot of is like learning in the flow for just in time. And so it's not really a category name per se but it's more so describing like what it is that we're doing. Um, so we're, we're still on that journey. Like we haven't really pinned, like I liked digital enablement, but it's not resonating the way that I, we, we haven't seen like a lot of movement from it yet. And so, you know, we're really trying to anchor in on like, who is like that real ICP once we have the full platform built out, and then how do we kind of refine our messaging to them?
0: I mean, I Got think it. when, when you're building a, a category, I remember we tried so hard to brand something right? To brand bot mitigation, bot detection. Like we, you, you, you try to, to come up with something to differentiate yourself against new competitors that come up and to differentiate yourself against existing solutions. I think analysts really were the ones that gave uh, the market a cre- the credible name that it ended up being. Um, before that, before uh, then, every single vendor I felt like, every single one of our competitors that sprung up named it something different. Yeah, right? and we were all fighting for for a different name to try to brand it, and it wasn't until analysts got involved that it got cemented.
2: Yeah, I'm yeah. actually proud. Be- oh, sorry, go ahead.
1: No, no, finish your thought. But I have a follow up question for Rami.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say, like, one of the the things that I'm not proud of per se, but that I think was beneficial is like on G two digital adoption. If we just take that category, in and of itself, actually represents two different products. Like, one is, hey, here's a product that you can put on your platform that is really like directed towards your users, right? And so think like Chase Bank putting some, some sort of walkthrough to train their consumers on how to log into their bank account, where you're sending selling to like a product team and an engineering team to implement into the product. And then there is the internal digital adoption where you're sending selling to, you know, a revenue enablement team to help train employees on all their internal systems. Both different solutions, but both kind of under that name digital adoption. So for G2, I was struggling because we were like low on the rankings even though we had the highest ranking for our use case. But we were getting confused because there were all these different solutions that we didn't solve for and vice versa. And so I got them to actually differentiate, not change the category per se, but within it, you could say like internal use case or external use case. And they finally added that parameter to separate the two. So I think even within categories, there's still a lot of blurred lines around like what really is this category and like where do we draw the line of whether this is a net new category or whether it's the same product, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, Uh, totally. So Rami, I distilled networks. How long was your journey there from uh, the beginning to the end?
0: Uh, eight and a half years.
1: Okay. When did you decide that you wanted to build a category, and then when did you engage more specifically with the analyst? Uh, because this is this is an area that you know a lot of startups are like. When do I start? You know, paying the uh, you know the, the the tax that you have to pay to Gartner and so on. So I'd love to hear about your journey here.
0: Yeah. So you know we we knew day one that the existing solutions to solve the problem just weren't working. Web application firewalls, DDoS mitigation wasn't solving the problem of managing all the different types of bots that were attacking websites. And so we knew that we had to come up with a different way of doing it. And we didn't wanna be labeled as a WAF or as as one of the existing solutions. So from day one, we were trying to differentiate ourselves as a different way of approaching solving the problem for for our customers. Um, It wasn't until about, three years in until I hired a, a really senior VP of marketing that knew that, you know, had knew, played the game before, right. As a, as a founder, this was my first like really scaled up business. My first company got aqua hired. So we never really hit scale. My, you know, with Distill networks, my second one, I hired a VP of marketing after raising our series A. So that was about three years in. And he was like, we've played the game. I played this game before. You got to get the analysts involved. And that's when we did. Um, I'll, I'll say though, we didn't pay the tax. He was smart enough. He knew a rep at Gartner. He knew a rep at Forrester. And he was like, I promise you, I will pay this tax, but I'll pay this tax next year. Get me some meetings, right? Because technically they're not supposed to be pay to play. Right, and they're supposed to take briefings, you know, even if you're not a client, right? And so, if you have an in, you can push off that tax for a year or two, with as long as you know the right people and you give the right briefings and you you start playing the game without actually paying it.
1: Yes, yeah. As you get bigger, and I've had some guests that you know, larger you know companies that you know rounds you know B, C, D, and at that point, you just you you definitely have to. Um, question for you: Did it affect your ability? If you're not in a Gartner report, did it affect your ability to close enterprise deals early on?
0: It, I'll flip it. Had we gotten um, other enterprise customers, I think would that would have been okay. But once we got in the report, it definitely helped us close more enterprise deals faster. Right, so yes, I, I guess it, in in short, yeah, it did it did help being recognized by the analysts to close enterprise deals.
1: Yeah, now I was speaking to Gartner recently, and uh, they're trying to you know get us to become a customer, and they're they're telling me that if you're on the report period, you should be excited about it. Irrelevant if you're like you know first or last. And I was like, well, I I disagree with that statement. So I'm curious for somebody who's been there before, like how high did you rank in that report, and. Uh, cause you're saying it did help you close deals, but like, where were you in the middle, the back, the front of the line? Well,
0: we're talking about category creation, right? So the first couple of reports that they do aren't magic quadrants and aren't waves, right? Um, so the first couple of reports are just market overviews. And once you convince them to give a market overview, they don't stack rank anybody. Right. And so in that, in that thing, it is true, just getting mentioned alongside some of the big players gives you an insane amount of credibility. So the first three, four years of Gartner and Forrester covering the space, there was no stack ranking. It wasn't until, you know, about year six into my journey, maybe year five in my journey that Forrester came out with a wave report and we came out On top, we actually came out the number one leader, and so that didn't hurt. I don't know what it's like being second place or down in the in the lower rankings because we got we came up on top. But um, first couple of years, it was in category creation, it was truly just a list, and that list alone helped us.
1: Okay, all right, we're gonna cheers. I see Rami, you're gonna. Oh yeah, am am I supposed to wait till
0: to cheers? No, you're not. But. We do it some down. really
1: cool side effects uh, where it, it does like the the ping, uh, and you see <laughs> right throughout okay. throughout the podcast. So I want to make sure we cheers because uh, Gil, it's Gil's podcast. He's done a great job setting it up, and um, I don't usually uh, get people that cheers nearly as much as he does. So I want to make sure I'm doing my part. Okay, uh, Melanie, there's two things I want to talk to you about because you did talk about G2 and. Um, obviously I, 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 uh, I have a, a passion about G2 and, and the flip side of the analyst, uh, but I would love to know, like currently right now, given that you guys are, you know, intersection in multiple categories, like what are you doing with the analyst?
2: Yeah. Um, to be honest, not much, I haven't made it as big of a priority as I probably should have. Um, we, we just hired a new VP marketing. So my, my comments on that might change soon, but honestly, I've been way more focused on like really building a brand around our company, um, and less on the analyst. What I found is that, you know, in, in our space right now, like there aren't a lot of companies that think about the problem the way we do. And so I'm much more focused on making sure that like people are understanding what we do and that people recognize our differentiation once they get to us, you know, there's, there's definitely a point where we'll want to be part of the, the, the Gartner reports. And to be honest, right now we're, we're, we're on the path to being enterprise ready, we're close. We're not like quite, quite there yet. And so even if, you know, like the Chase banks of the world were to come knocking at our door, like can we support them? Yes. Is it like the ideal platform yet? No, check back in like three to six months, right? And so we were really focused on more so like, hey, let's refine our ICP, let's refine our go to market. And I think that's really helped us get to where we are right now. It's just like taking a much more kind of direct approach. And now as we really think about winding the net when we're really, really ready to put some fuel to the fire I think that's gonna be a next part of our chapter.
1: Got it. Now, review sites. Uh, You brought up G2. How does that fit in into, um, you know, your your, your, your brand awareness play and, and your category creation?
2: Yeah, we found. So we sell primarily to like sales ops, rev ops, revenue enablement, sales enablement. And honestly, we've seen that for the most part, especially in the mid market, they tend to go to G2 first before they go to those big industry reports and analyst reports. And so that was actually a bigger priority for us. Than being included on one of those like paid Gartner Gartner reports. It's not to say that it won't become a bigger priority, but that's really where we wanted to make sure that we had a presence. Also, because end users can rate us there. Right. And so, when you're an enablement person and you're reading these raving reviews from from sales folks, like there's nothing that's more exciting, right? Versus seeing like an analyst report that says all of the kind of organization wide. So, that was my perspective. It was like, hey, what do our personas care about? What kind of feedback do they want to be reading and how are they going to validate whether this solution really provides the value that we say it does? Um, and so it made more sense for us to have App Exchange presence because we have a Salesforce integration in G2 before anything else.
1: Rami, so I don't think G2 was uh, such a powerhouse. It is today, 10 years ago when you started Distilled Network. So I'm curious at what point, if any, uh, during your uh, time at uh, as CEO of that company, did you decide to invest in customer
0: voice? We we did. T- we collected customer testimonials for just our general marketing campaigns. Now, I'll say, Gartner has um, a, a subsidiary that's a competitor to G two, right? And so they do collect user reviews and they aggregate those user reviews and if you're a client of Gartner then you also have access to that platform right we were trying very hard to continue to move up market and to continue to play in the enterprise space so that's why most of our energy went into Forrester Gartner um, and and you know 451 and a couple of the other analysts we didn't really pay attention to g2 and uh, and the other review sites i am now. Right. Um, so with Finmark, we're going after mid market customers and we are starting already putting it into the product. Right. Are you happy with us? Please review us in G2. Right. So we're trying to build up that presence and we're only a year old at, at Finmark. So I recommend doing it early.
2: Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And putting in the product, I think, is super important too um, to get as many people. That was the first thing our new VP of marketing came on board. He worked at Brandfolder before and he showed us like at Brandfolder, they had like six or 800 G2 reviews. And he's like, guys, you only have 48. Like that's something I'm like, I thought 48 was good because compared to our competitors, it's really not that bad. He's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like We got to get that. He's like, we have customer love. He's like, we need to translate that into reviews. Like those things matter. So we're, we're going to put a much larger emphasis on that.
1: That's good. I, I'm i all about, you know, uh, the voice of the customer because I really believe that's that's more important than what, you know, um, you know one or two people think. Uh, one of the things that we've done here is that, uh, if you have NPS in your product or if you have NPS that you can sell them via email, one, it gives you really good insights. But as soon as, you know, you get you get a, a score, you can say, oh, thank you so much. If you're willing to do an extra step and leave us a review on any of the, the sites, uh, you know, we'll give you an additional gift card to thank you for your time. That works extremely well. And then you also are able to build a community around the fact that now you have you know reviews that you can segment by, you know, geography, by size of business, by category, which I think is really important because when people are going to look on those review sites and they're gonna like, oh, well, do they have customers like me? And if you have 50 reviews and 48 are from software, they're like, well, they can't handle me. They only handle, you know, software companies. And so you have to be able to make sure that every individual, uh, every type of business you have, they have reviews on the side. So that when the filters are, are triggered by the, those individuals, that they can see that you already handle that. And uh, people don't trust salespeople nearly as much as they trust reviews. So uh, that's, that's the feedback I can share with with uh, the listeners today. Okay. So, um how do you know you've succeeded in creating a category? I'm going to start with Rami because you succeeded. And you said you were number one by the time uh, you guys exited. So, how, you know, when did you know?
0: And even when we were in the Forester wave, Gartner hadn't come out with a magic quadrant yet. And we weren't sure that that we were like that. This was truly a, a category. I think. I think once, once we were two years into a Forrester wave, that's when we felt like, okay, this is truly a category year one. We were like, it, you know, they, they come out with like uh, the, the new wave it's not like a full Forrester wave, right? Like, and, and you're not sure then, but then once, once it evolved, that's when we felt like, okay, we've made it. This is an actual category now. Um, and, and it wasn't until actually funny enough this year um, I just got a text message two days ago um, from one of my from my co-founder at um, my last company, and the Forrester Wave said that this is a billion dollar market opportunity, right? And so, even even two years after I sold the company, um, it was it was not until then that I felt like, okay, this was a big category, right? Before when we sold it, we we sold it and thought, hey, this was a small category. Right. And, and now it's, now it's like, okay, this is a bigger category. We shouldn't have sold it. You know, we should have kept going, but you know, um, you're still kind of evolving of how big of a category is this going to be?
1: Yeah. Uh, Melanie, any insights on this?
2: I think that while I don't think that I have an answer on like the category creation per se, like, I do think the answer is kind of similar with like, how do you know when you have product market fit? Right. The best answer I've ever heard is like, you know when you don't have it and then you know when you have it, right? And there's kind of that pivotal time. And like for us, like I know that happened like last fall, like the first two years of Stuck It, like we had some features, like it was starting to kind of like get traction, but like we didn't have any repeatability in like who we were selling to, how they were buying and like just that like consistent win. And then last fall, you know, when we brought on a new head of sales and so I was no longer in charge of sales, definitely a contributing factor. But then I think also like we moved away from just using the words digital adoption to digital enablement. And I think that was a major shift for us because I think the perceived value of digital adoption, if you look at the players in the space, right? The walk WhatFixes, what fixes guide me of the world, like the product per, the price per user is pretty low, right? It's like eight to $10 per user per month. And that's kind of the value that they've attributed to what it what it is to help employees learn their tools. Whereas we were saying, Hey, it's not just about learning their tools. It's about helping them feel more productive in their workflow by surfacing key knowledge. And that's when we started seeing that message is like, Oh, it's not just a tool problem. It's a, let's help people do their jobs and stay in the flow of work in a different way. And so we started seeing a lot more velocity in sales and like, we've driven a lot of growth over the last like 12 months. Um, I'd say, and it just feels like We've really hit our stride. And so I'd say, while I don't think we've defined the category per se, I do think like changing our messaging positioning from like adoption only to adoption plus enablement was a major shift in that kind of digital enablement messaging really resonated um, with our audience.
1: Yeah. And when you build a, if you're trying to participate in a category that has been existing, the keywords are really expensive. If you're trying to buy some Google, but if you start creating your content really early and you have different words there, by the time the category is established, you'll be fortunate that you already have the SEO and then you just need to compete on on keywords on, you know, the, the people that you want to engage with. So something to think about.
2: We were just talking about that though, which I think is a hard debate, you know, in the early days when you have only so much of a a team, because the first thing you want to do is just capture demand, right? Like there's, if you think about demand, and it's like, do you want to capture the inbound demand that there already is like that's happening on Google, or do you want to go create demand? Right. And I think like in the early days, like you're just trying to capture whatever demand is out there that people are searching for. So if I know that we solve for digital adoption, even though that's not just what we do, I'm like, well, if people are searching for that, then I want to make sure that we're, we're located there somewhere, even though really like the long-term play is that. And so I think that's like the, the hard challenge early, early on, when it comes to SEO, SEM and like that content strategy, because you don't necessarily have a 15 person demand gen team that can kind of go after both at once. And so you're having to weigh both, both of those with agencies. And so I definitely agree, but I think that was, that was one of the first conversations we had with our new VP of marketing. He's like, what has been your strategy to the farm? Like, well, I know people are looking for this one thing that we solve for. So that's kind of what we focused on is like, well, maybe we should start, start moving in the other direction too. Yeah.
1: I mean, we're, we're doing it here, right? We, we, yeah. we will definitely say that, you know, we are an ABM vendor just so we have an ad bat. But at the end of the day, when you're on the phone, we're like, well, ABM is just one way to do marketing. We do all of the other ways of marketing, yeah. Yeah. and so then they're like, "Oh, interesting." So we're definitely playing in that sandbox so that we can, you know, get the, you know, uh, advantage of you know being on G two reports and the SEO that comes with it, and so on. But then we we try to, you know, change the uh, the discussion when we get on the phone uh, with our prospects. Rami, um, any additional insight on this? What did you guys do from uh, a keyword standpoint, and uh, what did you, you, know. you guys focus on?
0: I, again, having not done it before, I was really late to the keyword SEO game. Um, and, and we did well, right? But but it was several years in. It was like three, four years in when we hired that VP of marketing that knew what he was doing. He started creating that SEO, SEM, um, demand gen um, to capture people that were looking for this. Now, one of the things that's, that's really hard to do um, that I've done with Finmark is even though there's not a high level of search, there's not a high level of demand, I've... Early on, I invested in hiring somebody to focus on SEO and SEM, right? Um, Just because I felt confident in our ability to hit scale, right? Like it's it's hard as a founder, right? You don't even know if you're gonna survive a year or two your first time around, right? So investing for something that's long tail, that's like, hey, this is gonna take a year or two to just get up and running is hard to, to, to stomach as a founder. But if you can, if you can just think about it, put a little bit of energy into it, your two, year, three, year, four, it's gonna pay off. So one of my first hires, and one of my early hires at Finmark was somebody just to build content to capture SEO and that's been growing steadily, right? It started with one sign up from our, our content from our blog a month. And then now it's up to like 30, 40 signups, 50 signups, and it's growing 20% month over month. It compounds, it just takes a lot of time. And, and it's it's hard to invest that when you don't know if you have that time. But I recommend if you can put a little bit of energy into it, it's worth it, especially if you're creating a category. Because once you get cemented in the the, the search engines. You're there. You're golden, right? And yeah. when you're creating a category, there, there's nobody that's really taking the top spot.
1: Now, what what's the difference? Uh, we Melanie is a first time founder. You're a second time founder. Like, what what are the things that you know are, are different the second time around after you've had a successful exit?
0: You know, after you've had a successful exit, you, one, fundraising is a lot, lot easier, right? And I think with, with category creation or just any kind of first-time founder startup, um, fundraising is a pain And like, I I had my seed round, I had 107 no's, and it took me 11 months to raise my seed round, um, and, like, All my advisors had even told me we were unfundable before we got that first round done, right? Um, Second time around, I literally didn't have a deck. I took a single slide and, and an idea and went to my previous investors and had several million dollars in the bank in a couple of weeks, right? Like it's just a different level of fundraise um, your second time around, but you also know the playbook. You know what to do, so you know who to hire and you know what the, what the steps are. So I knew to hire an SEO person. I knew to hire somebody to lead up marketing. I knew to hire the, the right engineers. Um, and, and it just, it feels like, it feels like muscle memory. Right as as we're building this company, there's still a lot to learn. There's still a lot to get right, but the first three years, three and a half years of distill, I've replicated in thirteen months at Finmark. That's that's the, the the difference in in kind of knowing what you're doing and having the the capital, the experience, and all of that behind you.
2: That's great. I just, uh, I just admire your ability to go do it again. <laughs> I'm <laughs> like,
0: yeah. I'm first- a for I, I, you know, I'll, I'll, as an aside, the darkest, the darkest days of my life were the six months after we sold. I actually felt really lost. Um, I went into like a, de- a depression um, because, you know, I, I actually didn't want to sell. Um, one of the things that I'll tell for for founders, um, it's a it's a marathon. I had the energy to keep going. My co-founders didn't. My investors were like, "Hey, we have a good offer. Let's just take our chips off the table." Um, And and I I didn't want to sell. So um, I I personally really find energy and 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 happiness through creating stuff, right? Um, But not everybody's there because it is it is creating a company is tough enough. Creating a category is even tougher. I I told you this, Olivier. It's like plowing the road with your face right like doing this is just it's it's painful but you know at the end of it it's fun i, I like it i don't know <laughs> that's probably why
1: you're doing it again though right because you're like yeah.
0: i wasn't done like I, i'm like i got i got more to
1: prove that's probably why you're doing it again um good for you okay uh we're gonna do cheers and then we're gonna go into some uh questions a little bit different cheers okay I love this question. What is a hashtag fail moment in your career as an entrepreneur? <sighs> what? And you guys can think about it because I want something. I don't want the person that comes to mind unless it's a really good story because um, we've all had them, right? Um, actually, failures happen on pretty much daily basis, <laughs> especially at the beginning. So I'm just curious, like what is one that you know, people could learn from and maybe even get inspired by?
2: Um, I think for me was just making a, was taking a big bet and re- making a really wrong decision when it came to hiring our first head of marketing. Um, and that was really tough because, um, it was so just for context, it's like what was happening at the time. Um, my co-founder had just separated from her husband and partner of like 16 years. So that was like kind of the state that she was in. So I was like responsible for this we were still like only 25 people trying to figure things out. I was going into fundraising and I desperately needed head of marketing. And instead of doing the full search and we had hired a killer head of sales, he's absolutely amazing. I had one of our customers, head of marketing that had used the product and like loved it, but came from more of an agency background. Um, basically, you know, raise his hand for, for the role and phenomenal leader and great marketer um and someone that I really really admire but I really underestimated how much lack of how hard it would be to transition from like a traditional agency model to like knowing how to roll out a B2B SaaS marketing playbook and knowing how to take like well I've got product marketing demand gen I've got all these different facets and how to tie them all together and how to make sure that there's synch- synchronicity across these different teams to really drive a strategy forward and long story short, you know, luckily, you know, it became very clear that it wasn't going to work out long-term, not because that there wasn't any willingness. And I think that was the hardest part for me. It's the first time I, you know, I'm a first time founder. I luckily so far, we're almost 90. We haven't made a lot of hiring mistakes. We've been really lucky. And I hate calling it a mistake. I think it's a mistake on my part more than anything of underestimating our needs and not getting clear on that. But it was, it was really hard for us. And it ultimately set us set us back a little bit because now we had sales going full steam, we had product going full steam. And then like, we just didn't have the inbound that we needed. Um, And so, you know, the lesson there for me was like just getting super, super clear and like realizing that at this stage with the massive opportunity in front of us, like we just can't afford this to be a first time training ground for everyone, for for anyone, especially not one of our core leaders. Um, And so I'd say that is probably like the biggest fail that I've had was just like, thinking that somehow we could be different, you know, against the advice of our investors, it against the advice of everything that I've read, that like, we could somehow make this work, even though most people haven't been able to sell, so, you know, still have a great relationship, the, the the individual is in a phenomenal role, you know, we're, we're in a good place, it was just, it's hard having to separate from an individual, you know, from a working relationship where there's a lot of mutual respect, there's no lack of trying, lack of, of doing but it just wasn't working out and like just the negative ripples of that sense in the organization
0: i'll, I'll cheers to that i had to fire my one of my co-founders I'll first cheer. year in and that separation's tough Yep. so all rami right. what
1: was your hashtag fail moment all
0: right i'm gonna don't hate me I, I i have to give you two because they they happened at the same time um the first hashtag fail moment is uh thinking that product market fit is constant right it's fluid um we being a category creator um early on we thought we had product market fit because literally like if you had this problem we went to you and then you were like oh oh my god amazing i you you solved my problem right and we we were the first we were the only it was like picking fruit not off low-hanging fruit off the tree but like picking fruit off fruit off the ground Right. Um, What we didn't realize is that um, as competitors came into the market, even if they weren't as good at blocking bots, at solving the core security problem, if they were easier to implement, if they were already part of a platform, that that's a different buying behavior and that customers were just happier doing that. Like, hey, I would I will take half as good, but I get to press the easy button. Totally. Right. And that that was one of the biggest fail moments, like be aware that product market fit is evolutionary and you have to be aware that it happens. It changes over time. Right? I said that that happens at this that happened at the same time as something else. Right. And the other thing that happened was um, not having a good, solid financial model and having a good, solid financial leader. Um, the same time that that happened, we had just taken a growth round of equity. Um, we had just double, more than doubled the size of our sales team, more than doubled our ex- spend in, in marketing. But my, my, head of, my head of finance made a mistake in our financial model where he accidentally was double counting cash. So all of a sudden, our sales efficiency went to crap, and we were tripling down on our spend because we had just gotten this, um, this spend, and, and our runway was a fraction of what we, what the reality, what we thought it was. And when we discovered that mistake four and a half, five months into, um, into building that budget in that model, we realized we were going to run out of money a lot faster than we thought we were. And I had to lay off a third of the company, all the salespeople that I had just hired that hadn't even ramped up, I had to let go. I had to let go of the marketing team. We had just tripled the size, quadrupled the size of our office, but I signed a new lease. That was wasted money. And so all of that compounded. You put together, you know, competition making it harder to sell, overspending and not realizing it. And it was just it took us a couple of years to find our footing again. After that big mistake, and that's actually the genesis of FinMark. That's the reason that I went back and built this company is because the financial model had a mistake in it that shouldn't have been there, right? And and I want to make it better so that fi- founders don't uh, don't run out of money again or don't realize that there there's mistakes in their finances again.
2: That oh, is a, yeah, we're both very compelling. <laughs> yeah, we're going to go very back
0: compelling business. <laughs> <Like,
2: and, laughs>
1: No wonder raising money is easy for you after that story. All right. You've become really good at uh, explaining the story, by the way. So uh, congrats on that. Okay. Um, Given time, we're going to go one more. um, And then we are going to depart for the day. So if you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be?
2: I think in the early days for me, it would have been, don't be so hard on yourself. And like, it's okay to take some time off. Um, I burned out pretty hard, like right after we raised our seed round, um, just because like at that point in time, like we we did a lot without taking on a seed round. Like we, we raised like 300K and like that lasted us like a year and a half. And like we built a product, we went to market initially. And like, you know, I didn't take a salary for 18 months. Moved to Colorado, live with my grandma who was like passing away in the, in, at the, at the same time, like it was, you know, just made a lot of sacrifices. Zari downloaded to a studio. She was taking like calls with our team in Pakistan at like 11 PM at night from her bathroom to not like disrupt her husband. Like we just like, we did all this stuff and we were like in this, like rough for 18 months, I was doing like sales and marketing and all these stuff. And like our first client was JLL and enterprise, right? Like we were doing a lot at the time. And I was going to all these conferences and I was like, literally like flying, like nonstop, like doing it all. I built our website, like personally did all the SEO, like learned about all the stuff, which now I actually think makes me a much more effective CEO because I can speak the language with a lot of these leaders. But I just, I said no to everything in my life. And like, I am someone like I I love work. I do. I love building. I love creating. Like, I don't get tired easily when it comes to that stuff, but I also like, I love people. I love celebrating life. Like I love going to concerts. I love going to music, but because I had no money and because I was so, you know, I was like, if I, like, I can't be a founder and like go to Red Rocks. Like I can't be a founder and do all these things. Cause there's just like this hustle porn happening everywhere. Um, I just, I think I really, really sacrificed my happiness, which like impacted my ability to like really sell the vision and be creative and and everything else. And so I think I'd go back and like just integrate a little bit more of like the balance into my life earlier on, because I actually think we'd be further along just because that first 18 months, like I felt like I had to say no to everything, like, and it felt like almost punishment, which created this like false, like just relationship to like what i was building you know it made the hard days that much harder and turns out in the early days everything's hard (laughs) so uh, i think i just go back and like spend a little bit more time just what brings me joy and what makes me you know show up my best and make sure that i'm like prioritizing that even when it feels wrong uh, to do that's
1: that's a really wonderful story i've noticed that you know if the ceo or whoever the executives are at the top are putting all this pressure on themselves and they're not taking care of themselves well, that just trickles down. Right. And that just goes to every layer uh, of the, uh, of the team. And so you want to make sure that you are taking care of yourself because life is too short. And specifically when you're in tech and startups and like, you know, everyone's like working, you know, 15 hour days. And um, I think it's just, you know um, it's important in the beginning, but I think as you grow, like you have to make sure that you you want, you're taking care of yourself. So your employees take care of themselves and then they can do their job much, much, more easily and efficiently uh, if they're in a good headspace and, you know, they have taken the time to rest. So I love that story. Thank you for sharing. Rami.
0: Okay. So I, I want to say I'm not disputing any of what you're saying. I completely agree. You have to find the right work-life balance. My, my advice to my younger self is actually before I even started the, my, my last company um, in my twenties, I optimized for um, making money but also just having fun. Right. And, and that was the time that I wish I had gone back and gained experience. Right. Um, and, and so sacrifice the, the six figure paycheck to go work at a startup or go get, you know, that, that ground level experience. And just I, like, I, I got to a place where I was so happy because I was doing my job in 20 hours a week and working remote and having a blast and making six figures in my twenties. But like, Had I had I not done that, I would have had a much better successful path in building my company. So like and now that I have a family, now that I understand that, like I need to have work life balance in my, you know, in my 30s and and so on. I wish that I had hustled harder, worked harder in my early 20s when I when it was when it was available, when I had no commitments, when I had nothing else. Focus on not money and not not, you know, partying, but focus on gaining experience and building a network right in your early 20s what the, my most powerful asset right now is my network. That is what makes me who like successful today. And if I had started that, Early on, when I was 22, 25, it, I, it would be it would have compounded so much better. And so, if if you're out there, you're listening to this, and you're you know 21 out of college, 25, go like hustle your ass off to meet smart, intelligent, connected people, or build a network of of peers that that, that are as motivated as you and gain as much experience as you can, because it's going to get harder harder to do later so to take this time don't surround yourself with people that want to party surround yourself with with people that that can that you know want to learn want to grow and and that's gonna that's gonna compound later on in life
1: well I can definitely relate to that one I I was I call myself a late bloomer Uh, (laughs) I enjoyed my 20s I I had a great time and by the time I got married which was also my late 20s and had kids I was just like well at least I got that fun part out of the way now (laughs) I can really focus on what is important to me, which you know, is my family and, and my career. So, all right, guys, it was a pleasure to have you guys. Um, if you guys have any parting words, or if you want you uh, to um, talk about any of the things that your companies might be releasing over in the next few months, please do so now. And then uh, we'll call it a day. Melanie.
2: Love it. Well, just echo what, what you just said, your twenties are for earning and thirties are for learning. Thirties are for earning is one of the better quotes that I've heard that I've really taken to heart. I also, uh, definitely, uh, Focus most of my twenties on making sure that I was learning as much as I could from everyone and it's, and it's paying off. So, and I'm still in my twenties. So here we are. (laughs) Um, but, uh, no, I appreciate you guys having us, you know, check us out. We're, we're growing a bunch, hiring across all sorts of roles. We're hiring for a head of demand, Jen. So if you're listening to this podcast, please, uh, please reach out to us. Uh, but up to a lot of exciting stuff. So follow me on LinkedIn if you want to learn more.
1: Thank you.
0: Awesome. you know, I'll, I'll say the same. Um, don't don't make the mistakes I made. Um, make sure your finances are in order. Whether and, and whether you use a product like FinMark or you do it, you know, you you have good quality people doing it in spreadsheets. It's a lot harder in spreadsheets. But make sure that you keep a, a, a close eye on your finances. The number one reason that entrepreneurs fail or startups fail is that they run out of money, right? And so don't don't be that 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 gal that guy that runs out of money because they weren't paying attention either check out Finmark, hopefully we can make it easy, or, um, you know, hire somebody to help you make sure that you have a really solid uh, handle on your finances.
1: All right. Thanks, guys. It was a pleasure having you. Thanks. Thanks Thanks again for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed today's discussion and will tune in again. Find all the B2B Category Creators episodes at metadata.io. And if you have any feedback, topics, or would like to be a guest on the show, please reach out.